In the months after my friend R's death, I suffered bouts of shame, deeper than any I'd experienced before. These were often followed by unreasonable fits of anger, which had me shaking my fist at drivers when I was walking and shouting at pedestrians when I was driving. At least I considered them unreasonable at the time, which is why I didn't tell anyone about them. Now I might accept all this as ordinary, a natural part of the grieving process, as inevitable as my eventual recovery. While I was in the middle of it, though, I didn't know recovery was possible. I believed, with near certainty, that I was slowly and quietly losing my mind. I went through the motions of job and domestic life, teaching my classes, meeting with students and colleagues, preparing dinner with my wife, changing and bathing and playing with our infant daughter, but secretly I was saying goodbye to all of them, imagining I wouldn't or couldn't be among them much longer. It both amazed and infuriated me that no one seemed to recognize how close I was to taking leave of my senses, how deeply I'd retreated into my sorrow. Though keeping everyone from recognizing these things was exactly what I'd intended. My daughter was just shy of six months old when R died, and that may account in part for the intensity of my shame. For me to be immersed in the newness of her life when R's was ending seemed not only unjust, but incredibly selfish. I didn't deserve to delight in her smiles, to cheer her first efforts at sitting up on her own, to celebrate her reaching the half-year mark two days before R should have turned thirty-eight. I did those things anyway, in a distracted fog, all the while feeling I should have been actively mourning the loss of my friend, sitting in a darkened room in uncomfortable clothes, shutting out the world with all its potential for pleasure and contentment. At the same time, I berated myself for not being more present in the here and now, for not taking note of every one of my daughter's chortles and gassy grimaces, for not snapping pictures of her in every new outfit, for not writing down the exact time and date of her first bite of solid food, for not acknowledging how precious each moment was, how quickly everything would change. I was caught, in other words, between living and not living, a condition that wasn't entirely unfamiliar to me, but one that caused me terrible anguish and kept me from embracing daily routines as a means of accommodating what had been taken from me with what, for the time being, I still had. It was in this state, oscillating between wonder and despair, that I stepped out of my front door early morning in mid-March, less than three months after R died. Two years earlier, when we'd first decided to have a child, my wife and I had moved to Salem, Oregon, to be closer to our jobs, and now I walked its streets at odd hours, 5.30 on a Sunday morning, a quarter to midnight on a Tuesday, glimpsing its features through the dim filter of dawn or dusk, and seeing in its shadings hints of all the places I'd been before. What should have been a simple sidewalk in Salem became sidewalks in Morristown, New Jersey, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in Edinburgh, in Prague, and even in places I'd read about but had never visited.
St. Petersburg, for example, where I'd been transported in the works of some of my favorite writers, Bible, Chekhov, Turgenev. I don't know what I was looking for in these places, or if I had any genuine hope of finding something. A suggestion of solid ground, maybe, or a map with which to trace my trajectory from the person I'd been to the person I'd become. One for whom loss had seemed inconceivable to one who now saw loss looming wherever he turned.